Philippians 1.12. Are you there? We're there. Okay, please stand for the reading of God's word. Philippians 1.12. Now I want you to know, brothers, what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. Because of my chains, most of the brothers in the Lord have been encouraged to speak the word of God more courageously and fearlessly. It is true that some priests Christ preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so in love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I'm in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help given by the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to to depart and to be with Christ, which is better by far. But it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith. So that through my being with you again, your joy in Christ Jesus will overflow on account of me. Good morning. So this year, we're spending about the first four months diving into this letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to a church in Philippi. And as I mentioned last week, Philippians really paints a picture of what it means to live the Jesus life, what it means to live life with Jesus, what Scott was talking about earlier, walking with him, following him, following his example, living for him, the Jesus life. And I I use that phrase to contrast that from a life of just religion or spirituality or philosophy. Paul is talking about life with a person, Jesus Christ. And and today we get this, this rare glimpse into Paul's own personal life. We even get to hear him processing out loud uh, some things that he's thinking about. We get this beautiful example of a man who is really living the Jesus life. And I want to start with that famous phrase that most of us have heard before, if we've grown up in the church at all, in verse 21, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. That's a phrase that I think has inspired Christians for 2,000 years now. 
Um, I'm going to put it up literally in the original Greek that this was written in. Literally, Paul says this. For, to me, to live, Christ, to die, gain. Uh, we might put some equal signs in there. For me, to live uh, means Christ, and to die means gain. And I want to start with that, that top phrase first. Um, to live is Christ. Paul is saying, you know what I really live for? What really gives me meaning in life is Jesus Christ. Last week, we looked at his prayer uh, in verse 9 through 11. He says, I want you guys to know what really matters, right? I want you to be able to discern what is best. And now he's telling us, for me, what really matters is Christ. He's what gives my life meaning. He's what drives me to do the things I do. He's the treasure I'm seeking. He's the good life that I am working towards. That I, that I, he's, he's it for me. And I was reading a commentary this week, and I thought they, had a, they made a good point. They said, uh, you know, every human being has to answer, uh, has to fill in the blank, basically, with this question. For me, to live is, is blank. Everyone has to ask themselves a question. What am I really living for? Like, what, really, what are the things I'm seeking? What's driving me? If you get underneath my behavior to my motivations... What's really driving me to do the things I do? What, what is, what's my goal in life? And every human has an answer to this question, okay? They might not know what their answer is. They might not be able to articulate it, but everyone has an answer or at least a set of answers to that question. I, I wanted to start by just having us think about our own lives. Like, what is my answer? If I'm honest, if I get underneath my behavior to my motivations, how would I answer this question? I'm going to throw out some examples to get you thinking. I think for some people at, at rock bottom, what life is about is, is ultimately is about recognition. It's like, I, I want to be recognized as somebody who's significant, who's important, who's valuable. I was thinking about a, a quote from one of my favorite philosophers from Madonna, actually, um, <laughs> that I remembered uh, this week, uh, where she was interviewed. And Madonna, of course, is an amazingly successful pop artist who has been able to really recreate herself over the decades and had an amazing career. And there's this interview, and she was very, I think, very honest and vulnerable in sharing, um, did I do that again? No. Okay, so something else happening. Um, here's her quote about what's driving her. I have an iron will, and all of my will has always been to conquer some horrible feeling of inadequacy. I push past one spell of it and discover myself as a special human being, and then I get to another stage and think I'm mediocre and uninteresting again and again. My drive in life is from this horrible fear of being mediocre, and that's always pushing me. It's pushing me because even though I've become somebody, I still have to prove I'm somebody. My struggle has never ended, and it probably never will. Very honest, very vulnerable about saying, at rock bottom, I want to be somebody. I want to prove to the world, I want to prove to myself that I'm somebody. And that drives me to do what I do. How do you answer that question? For other people, if you look at their lives, you say, I think kind of acquiring wealth as a way of feeling significant is what drives me in this. Or maybe being attractive and desirable to others is at, at bottom what's, what life is all about for me. Enjoying friends and family. Uh, for some people, honestly, life is about a sports team. <laughs> uh, I went to a memorial service a couple years ago where 
the, honestly, the message of the ser- service was what mattered most to this person was USC football. Like you for sure came away. I don't know if that would be how he would say it if you were there, but that was the message. What mattered most to this person was USC football, right? So what is that for you? Um, just to keep us thinking. So my wife and I last year, we, we dove into the Enneagram personality test. How many of you have, are aware of the Enneagram personality test? Okay. Just, it's a personality test. You don't need to know about it to know what I'm about to do. Personality test. Um, you can keep fixing it for me as it keeps, we're having technical difficulties today. Bruce, if you can get that one back up. It's a, just a personality test. Um, you, there's nine, you can be one of nine different numbers. Okay. Uh, so you can be a one, you can be three, you can be five. Are you working over there? Okay. Okay. Just making sure. Um, all right. So this, this may keep happening. Yeah. Uh, we thought it was my fault first service. Now we're realizing it's technical difficulties. Um, it's still my fault. Yeah. It's <laughs> uh, good. I'm a nine. Uh, all right. So, but you can ask what, what, what's great. What's great about I'm, I was going to make some other offhand comment about what personality you are. Um, the, the, the test tries to get at your underlying motivations, like what really drives you to do the things you do. So you don't need to know what your number, you'll probably discover your number right now. But this is just ways that people, what, what's driving people. So if you're a one, the one, life is about doing it right. Like I want to, I don't want to fail. I want to do things the way they're supposed to be done. And that drives me at my work. That drives me at my parenting. That I want to do it right. Uh, if you're two, <laughs> uh, the positive way to say it is life is about helping others. The more negative way is, to, is life about, is about being needed. I need to be needed. But no, I want to help others. And I find meaning and purpose in helping others. My wife is a two. I'll just say it. You'll find out what I'm in just a second. Um, <laughs> For a three, life is about winning, right? Life is a competition. It's about being smarter or faster or wealthier or more successful than the next person. Everything's a competition. It's all about winning. Uh, For fours, uh, life is about expressing yourself. It's about being original and having a voice and, and sharing that voice. It doesn't really matter what the voice is, but you be yourself. That's what life is about. That's a big cultural message today. Uh, for fives, life is about gaining knowledge, it's like to take it all in. Don't want, really want to live, but if we can just absorb it all, take knowledge in. I have some five in me for sure. Um, for sixes, life is about being safe, staying safe, protecting ourselves from dangers. Again, I'm simplifying things. Uh, for sevens, life's about fun and adventure. And the end, yeah, they're my sevens. Come on. The sixes are very nervous right now, as you say. <laughs> For eights, uh, this, is, this is maybe not a fair one, but eights, it's about control, wanting to kind of be able to exert control over our circumstances. That's what drives them. And then for nines, life is all about harmony. It's about inner harmony and relational Harmony, conflict is bad. Um, so I'm a nine with a one wing, just to let you know, which makes me a very conflicted individual. Um, I could explain that more. These are just ways of thinking about um, 
what drives us? What is life all about? In any given situation, what are the underlying drives, pursuits that are, are making us do the thing we do? And another way of getting at this question is to ask, you know, Paul says to live as Christ, to die as gain, to ask, what's death for me? Like, what's the worst for me, right? So uh, if you're a nine, conflict is death. Conflict is the worst. If you're a one, failure is death. If you're a three, of course, losing is death. If you're a four, Madonna's probably uh, a four and a three, I'm guessing. But sort of mediocrity is the worst thing that I could be. And that can help you kind of figure out what, what's the treasure I'm seeking. So that's a long intro, all that to say, what is it that we're living for? What is truly driving us? And the Apostle Paul, of course, says, you know, for me to live is Jesus. Uh, I've abandoned other things, comfort, reputation, security. I want Jesus. That's what drives me. For me to live is Christ. And just to parse that out a little bit, I think when he says for me to live is Christ, he means two things specifically. First, he means for me, life is all about knowing Jesus. He'll say in chapter three, I want you to know the surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus. It's about this personal relationship with him where I experience his person, his presence in my life, his greatness. It's about actually knowing him the way you might know another person. And that's why I think he says what he says next. For me to live is Christ and to die is what? Is gain. Why is to die gain? Well, to die is to gain Christ in a more immediate way. To be in his actual immediate, unmediated presence, to experience him in all of his glory and goodness. That's why death is gained, because life for him is Christ. To know Jesus Christ. I think he also means not just to know him, but then the other thing he means is, and life is about making him known. It's about making this Jesus that I've experienced as this amazing treasure and person. It's about making him known to others. And that's why he says what he says right before this. If you look back at verse 20, take a look in your Bibles at verse 20, the last half of it, he says, I, I want to have sufficient courage so that now as always Christ will be exalted in my body. See what in the word for that I get translated exalted, the Greek word has in it the word mega, which we all know. He wants Christ to be megad, okay? To be made big and great. Uh, another English word we say, he wants Christ to be magnified, right? I want to make Christ known. I want my life to make Christ magnified to other people. And uh, I read a, I was reading a sermon from John Piper years ago, and I still remember it. He talks about what it means to magnify Christ. He says there's two ways you can, that something can be magnified. One is to think about like a microscope, okay? What a microscope does. So you guys remember back in high school, you know, biology, um, there's something that is very small. It's microscopic. But then a microscope, through a series of lenses, magnifies that thing and makes it bigger than it actually is so that you can see it more clearly and study it. And Piper's saying, that is not uh, the sense that Paul means when he talks about magnifying Jesus. He means it in the sense that a telescope magnifies something. So think about with a telescope, you have something that is actually huge, like a star. 
It's actually huge and bright and beautiful and, and glorious. But because of our perspective, it is so small and faint and we can't see it for what it actually is. And so what a telescope does is it magnifies that object so it actually gets a little bit closer in our perspective to the actual size of the object. And Piper said, that's what Paul means when he talks about magnifying Jesus. He's saying Jesus is big and bright and beautiful and amazing. But from this, our perspective, we, we don't see that. But, but hopefully, my life, Paul's saying, can give people just a little glimpse, can magnify a little bit so they get a little taste of just how awesome and glorious Jesus is. So that's what I think he means when he says to live as Christ. It means, it means to know Jesus and it means to make him known to others. That's why I live my life. So that's a long introduction. And we're going to walk pretty quickly uh, through the passage for the rest of our time. But what, what I'd like to do for the rest of our time is I want you to kind of just be sitting with how you answer that question. If you can kind of get inside it. Like what, what is, what's life for me? And as you do that, we're going to consider Paul's life. And what a life looks like, what it can look like when it is lived for Christ. And the joy and the freedom and the perspective that can come through whatever circumstances a person is going through when for them to live is Christ. So we're going to walk through this pretty quickly. I want to look at um, three different aspects of Paul's circumstances, okay? We're going to look at his physical circumstance, his relational circumstance, and then his future circumstance. And we'll see how living for Christ really transforms his experience of each of those perspectives. And I want you to be thinking about how would I react to all these circumstances if it were me. All right, so first, let's look. Does that make sense? You guys ready? We're going to kind of move pretty quickly through the rest of this passage. We're going to start back from the beginning. Um, So let's first look at his physical situation. This begins in verse 12. Um, Just to remind you, Paul is in prison when he writes this. He is in prison in Rome, we think, writing to a church hundreds of miles away. Uh, And we don't know if he's in like what we would consider an actual prison. He may be on something that's closer to house arrest. All right, where he, he can't go anywhere, but he's very restricted. Either way, it's a, it's a bad circumstance. Um, so here you have Paul, the greatest missionary in the first century, the guy who loves to travel and share the gospel. Now he's stuck. He's confined. He is not free. He's in a very tough circumstance in prison or on house arrest. And he begins in verse 12 from that circumstance. And look what he says to them. He's reporting about his circumstances. Now, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. And I was just thinking this week, if it were me as a, as a pastor in prison writing maybe to you all, I think my letter would start differently than that. Um, something maybe in my best moments like, hey, I, I want you to know that I'm okay, that I'm safe, I'm fed, I'm okay. Um, maybe in a different place, I might say, I want you to let me know if you have any connections in Rome with authorities in Rome. See if you can help me get out of this situation, right? I would be thinking about myself and, and talking to you on that level. But for Paul, he's interested in the good news about Jesus. That's, that's what he cares about. That's what he wants to talk about. And what he's saying is, hey, I want you guys to know All is good because the news about Jesus is spreading even though I'm in prison. And it's spreading 
in prison and out of prison. Look at verse 13. As a result of my imprisonment, it's become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else here that I am in chains for Christ. So you've got all these Roman soldiers and officials and they're encountering Christ or encountering Paul in house arrest and they're having to spend time with him. And you can imagine what Paul loves to talk about. And now he's got this captive audience. And so he's preaching Christ and people in prison in the Roman guard are learning about Jesus Christ. And he's celebrating that. And not just that, but people outside of prison are learning about Jesus through his chains. Look at verse 14. Uh, Because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters that would be in Rome have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. So there's, there, apparently there's this cool dynamic in Rome where, where Paul's willingness to sacrifice himself, people are seeing his courage, and it's inspiring more people. Like, hey, we can do this too. Like, he's willing to go to jail for this. We can do this. And so it's inspiring people to share the good news. And so the good news is going out not just in prison with Paul, but outside in Rome. And so Paul is finding joy in a really tough circumstance because his circumstance is still providing him an opportunity to do what he loves most, which is to know Jesus and to make him known. And so on, this, on that first one, I, I think the thing I just want you to hear today, maybe if you only hear one thing that really struck me is for me and for most of us, you know, tough circumstances in our lives can really turn us upside down inside, right? I mean, it, when, when circumstances aren't going away, it can feel like the world is, is falling apart around us. And part of that is because of the things we've chosen to pursue. The things we've said, this is what life is for me. This is, this is what I'm going for. Based on what we've chosen, tough circumstances often feel like a barrier to the thing we want, an obstacle to the thing we want, right? Like if, if what I really live for is comfort, well, now I've been thrown into this circumstance and things are very uncomfortable right now and I, I can't get the thing I want. Or if my thing is financial security, well, what happens if I lose my job? Okay, I, I've, that's a barrier to, to my goal. What if my, my goal is harmony? Well, what if I'm thrown into some situation where there's relational conflict? I, I don't, I, that's a barrier to my goal. But for Paul, he says, for me, life is all about Jesus. Knowing him and making him known. Well, Good circumstances provide a great opportunity to know Jesus and make him known. But guess what? Bad circumstances? Well, they provide an equal opportunity, sometimes even a better opportunity, to know Jesus and to make him known. So sure, I don't, I don't love these circumstances, but I haven't lost the thing I want. I have it either way. It really doesn't matter in that sense. I'm not beholden to a particular outcome to have the thing that I want in life. And so there's a great freedom for him. So that's his physical circumstance. Uh, let's look at the relational situation he's in. And for me personally this week, this was the most interesting thing to think through. Um, let me just read to you verse 15 through 17. It goes on. Paul's talking about people are sharing the gospel. It's true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel, the former preached Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I'm in chains. So really interesting. We don't know all the details here, but what we do know is Paul did not found the church in Rome. Okay? He did not come and evangelize. Other 
teachers came and started that church. And it, apparently there's other uh, church leaders and maybe even church uh, preachers and missionaries out there. And what's happening is Paul's imprisonment is inspiring people to do more preaching. And some of them are doing it out of what Paul calls out of love, out of the right motives. But apparently there's a sort of a dark underside to some of the Christian community in Rome that other people are preaching the gospel out of different motives, uh, what he calls envy or rivalry or, or selfish ambition. So apparently you've got people, they are preaching the gospel accurately. Okay? They're, they're sharing the right message, but they have very mixed motives. And, and apparently there's, there's egos involved in their sharing of the gospel. And fortunately, this is not something that happens in 2018 in Orange County. But in the first century, there were, I guess there was, there was competition between even those who are sharing the gospel. And there was rivalry and there was jealousy. And so you've got people who are out there uh, sharing the gospel, not just because they love Jesus, but because they love the recognition that they can receive from sharing the gospel. And so the great Paul, the, right, the great apostle Paul comes into town and they don't view him as part of the, they view him as, as a threat, as competition, okay? This is about the gospel, competition. And now Paul's stuck. He can't do anything. So here's our opportunity to share, to get our name out and to stick it to Paul while he's stuck in prison. That's what Paul's saying. And I, I just was sitting with this this week and, and had to honestly like um, come to terms with the dark side of my own heart as a, as a, as a teacher, as a, as a uh, pastor even. And uh, this isn't, of course, unique to pastors, but whatever, you know, whatever line of work you do or even whatever stage of life, whatever your responsibilities are, um, I was just sitting this week with like that desire for recognition and then how much we compare ourselves with each other and, and how much we internally think, you know, who's, who's the smarter or more successful or better whatever or whatever or whose kids are better, you know, whatever. But there's so much of that that goes on internally, how much jealousy that creates in us or pride when we feel like we're on the right side of that. And, and even like, if we're honest, like at least if I'm honest, sometimes when we hear news about another person in our field that they've been really successful and our, our reaction is not just 100% joy, but there's this, there's some joy for them. But then there's this subtle, like, oh, I don't like, there's something that I don't like about that. And even the darker side is sometimes you hear a person not doing as well and there isn't a hundred percent sadness, but there's even this slight pleasure and like, Oh, okay. Okay. This is ugly stuff about the human heart that happens across, uh, you know, fields and lifestyles and all of that. And, um, but for me, I had to sit with like, the reality is what is life for me? And the truth is, even as a, you know, teacher of the word, um, teaching is not always about just Jesus, right? It's sometimes about Jesus and, and recognition and wanting people to respect you, wanting people to think, gosh, Dave's, you know, he's, he's kind of a big deal. He's a good guy, you know? And, and, and Jesus is my ticket to recognition and to feel that and to see that going on here. <laughs> I mean, that's kind of, that's, Get tapping. What is it that really drives you to do the things you do? And so you've got, the, you've got Paul here. He's stuck. Uh, he's seeing these ministries expand. And I just love 
And I, I don't know if this was easy for him internally or if this took work for him, but I just love his reaction to all of that. Look at verse 18. Here's Paul's reaction. Some of them are doing it this, some are doing this. But what does it matter? That's <laughs> what he says. Honestly, I don't care. <laughs> I don't care why they're doing it. I don't, I don't care how I measure up in the, the you know, preachers in Rome, you know, top 10. I, it doesn't matter to me. The important thing, he goes on to say, is that in every way, whether from false motives or true motives, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Hey, I want Christ to be known. And yeah, sure, I want good motives, but Christ can be preached. And if Christ is being made known, even through their bad motives, I rejoice in that. I don't, it doesn't matter to me. That whole game doesn't matter. What I want in life is Jesus. I want him, I want to know him. I want him to be made known. And so I'm rejoicing. I'm I'm celebrating that, even in prison. Pretty radical, pretty amazing. And then finally, let's look at his his, uh, future situation that he goes on uh, in uh, in verse 19 to talk about. So uh, it's clear, Paul's in prison, and he is facing some pending trial. There's some upcoming trial where he will be able to offer a defense of of himself and his life. And again, I was thinking, if it were me... I would be spending time in prison trying to think through a defense of why I'm actually a good Roman citizen, why I'm not a threat to the Roman Empire, why they should let me go. My goal would be to be released from prison so that I could live again and do what I think I should be doing. And and as you read these verses, you realize Paul's perspective is is quite different than that. Uh, For him, it's, it's almost like ultimately I'm not on trial. Ultimately, Jesus is on trial. This is about me giving a defense of Jesus and the gospel. My goal is not to get out of jail. My goal is to magnify Jesus. Again, look at verse 20, the last part of it. uh, I'm hoping that I will have sufficient courage so that now as always, Christ will be exalted in my life, whether by life or by death. My goal is to magnify Jesus I can do that by being released to life. Because if I'm, if I'm released from prison, well, that means more, as he goes on to say, more fruitful ministry for me. I can keep sharing the gospel with people. I can keep building you up, Philippians, and, and I can magnify him that way. But I can also magnify him, he's saying, in my death. If I present Jesus and they convict me and execute me, there will be a, a huge group of people that will see a man who is clearly in his right mind, who is willing to die for Jesus. And hopefully, that will cause people to stop and go, man, what would, what would convince a person to be willing to die for something? A person who's clearly in his right mind, who's not crazy. And hopefully, that might make people go, maybe there is something to this Jesus. Like, maybe he's the real, maybe this is something I need to look into. So Paul's like, I want to magnify Jesus. I can do that in my life, or I can do that in my death. For me to live as Christ, to die as gain. And then in verse 22, I'll kind of wrap it up, uh, the passage here. You get this really fun, rare insight into Paul's own internal processing. I kind of read this like he's almost thinking out loud on the paper. Thinking about these two options. Verse 22, if if I'm going to go on living, right, this would mean fruitful labor. That would be great. What, What shall I choose, though? I don't know. I'm torn between the two options, between life and death. And then he speaks honestly. Selfishly, I think he's saying, selfishly, I desire to go to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. <laughs> I mean, selfishly, I'd much rather die and be with Jesus because that's my ultimate goal is to be with him. 
So that's what I want selfishly. But as I step back, and I think, I think Jesus has more work for me to do in the world. And so I'm convinced of this. I know that I will remain and I will continue for your progress and joy in the faith. So he looks at this future situation, life and death, but he goes, you know what? Honestly, life versus death, it's kind of a win-win. Because my goal is to magnify Jesus. I can do that in life. I can do that in death. My goal is to know Jesus. I can do that in life. I can do that in death. So it's a win-win for me. Pretty radical perspective, huh? So let me uh, leave you with the question we started with. What is it that you're truly living for? What's driving you? What's the treasure that you're always seeking after that lies beneath your behaviors into the motivations that drive you? We've seen Paul's. And I want to leave you with a thought. What, what I realized this week, I realized something about Paul's situation, and uh, it's this. I've always thought of this as a very heavy passage, okay? Like, I mean, prison, these relational conflicts, possible death. Like, that feels really, really heavy to me, not what I would want for my life. And, and it taps into the suspicion that I, I live with, which is, like, if I were to fully give my life to Jesus, if I'd really surrender, it would result in this really heavy life that I don't want. Like, if, if I gave it all away, you know, he'd make me go be a missionary in Africa or something, or, you know, I, it would be some just gnarly thing, and, and, and I don't know if I'm up for that. That's why I live this kind of half-hearted thing where I, I have these other things that I, I seek after, and then I try to sprinkle Jesus into that, because that just, the all-in feels so heavy. And what I realized this week, as I actually spent time with this pastor, I realized, for Paul, yeah, his circumstances are heavy, but Paul is actually light, in this passage. Paul is free. Internally, he is, he is freer in this moment than I am in my life. And I thought, how ironic. Paul is in prison, and he is free. He is speaking like a freed up, freed, joyful person. And here we are in Orange County in 2018, and internally, we are imprisoned so much more than him because we're seeking these things so desperately and then we're trying to bring Jesus into that and it, and it kind of doesn't work. And so life is actually not free. And Paul's like, yeah, my circumstances are hard. I'm a free man. I'm joyful. I have contentment. And so that's what I realized is, is that's what we're being invited into. That nothing, in the end, nothing can stack up next to Jesus. No pursuit, no treasure can actually promise what he promises, both in this life and the next. And so Paul invites us, says, join me and live a life where you can say, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Let's pray. I want to just lead you through a little time here of uh, reflection. And, and let's start with a time, I'll call it a time of confession. But what I mean by that is just, let's just acknowledge prayerfully with the Lord. Like, what are, what are we living for? Um, I gave some examples, but can you identify one or two things with Jesus where you'd say, Jesus, if I'm honest, this is really, this is what really matters to me. This is what drives me to do what I do. And to be able to do that without shame, but just to acknowledge the truth of, of where you are. Um, take a minute with him and just actually speak that to him. Say, this, as best I can tell, this is what really matters to me. This is what drives me. Just take a moment to do that.
And then ask him, how does pursuing that thing, how does pursuing that thing make me less free? What are the costs to me of making that thing my goal and my treasure? Jesus, we acknowledge uh, that we run after so many things. And I pray uh, in the midst of that, would you magnify yourself in our hearts and minds today? Would you make yourself big and great and beautiful in our hearts and minds? Would we see you and life with you a little bit more clearly for the, for the treasure of it truly is. Would you release our tight grip on some of the, these other pursuits and treasures that we might hold on to you as the greatest treasure? Would you free us, that is to say, uh, to live with you and for you so that we might gent genuinely be able to pray Christ be with me Christ in me Christ before me Christ behind me Christ beneath me Christ above me Christ on my right Christ on my left Christ when I lie down Christ when I sit Christ when I stand. Christ be all in all. Let's say this prayer together. If you look up and say this with me. As I arise today, may the strength of God pilot me, the power of God uphold me, the wisdom of God guide me, the hand of God protect me, the way of God lie before me, the shield of God defend me. May Christ shield me today. Christ with me, Christ in me, Christ before me, Christ behind me, Christ beneath me, Christ behind me, Christ in my right, Christ on my left, Christ when I lie down, Christ when I sit, Christ when I stand. Amen.